Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, last time we talked a lot about Bradbury's style and how it both kind of contributes to his overall sort of structure and approach to this novel and how it is kind of distracting and frequently gets in the way of what he's trying to do and basically landed on this is kind of very much a very Bradburyan work low on plot, heavy on style, big on sort of broad and kind of difficult to pin down themes, and very, very much an original work by an original thinker with all of the good and bad that that implies. Um, we are subverting and ignoring many of the horror conventions that are typical of the genre, but Bradbury is kind of doing his own thing apart from the conventions of horror as we understand them. And we can really enjoy that if we accept that and if it appeals to our particular sensibilities, or it can very much frustrate and annoy us if that's not what we're into here. Um, but last time I talked especially about the style, about the sort of mechanics of Bradbury's writing, um, and hopefully drew kind of a through line um, from all of his earlier work up to this one, which is sort of the distilled essence of what makes Bradbury so distinct in so many cases. Um, here today, though, I want to talk about the deep matter of the book. Um, specifically, I want to look at the themes, um, the ideas that Bradbury is communicating to us, and above all, I want to look at the way that he depicts good and evil here. Um, how the various factions are presented, what the, the sort of threats that the villains offer to our characters are, as well as how our heroes manage to fight back against them. Um, and on the one hand, I should stress, this is kind of a really bad idea. Um, as I said last time, you know, Bradbury's themes here are all interwoven, and they're all kind of messy. He doesn't have a real, like, easily summarized thesis on this novel, the way that we've talked about many of his short stories, and the, the way that, you know, it, it tends to be so clear in, in some of his earlier work. Um, and you can attribute this to the messiness of his writing, or the fact that it's really not a priority to him, or, you know, he doesn't have a terribly robust, like, metaphysics underlying this book. Um, but at the same time, I want to treat it like it does. Um, I want to treat it like it does and see what we come up with. And, again, this could very well be a fool's errand, and we might very well end up mired in contradictions and sort of absurdly, like, grasping for meaning where, where really Bradbury is just having fun, you know, writing and let the po letting the poetry of his, of his prose just kind of carry him away. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there is something deeper here, or at least something that is kind of attempted to be deeper. Um, so we're going to try this. And on the one hand, again, this is something that I've done fairly often. Like, not really so much on this podcast, although, you know, the humanities lectures where I'm talking about, like, the various good and evil characters and the Faust stories it certainly comes to mind here. Um, usually when you see a work of speculative fiction and somebody really, really takes down, like, how does the world work? What are the mechanics here? What are the metaphysics? Um, you're probably talking about something with some really rich lore. Um, something like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, or, or Frank Herbert's Dune series, or 
you know, any any number of kind of fantasy works where it clearly is a major part of what's going on here. Um, it's something that is discussed. It is something that is illuminated. Like, you can talk about, you know, good and evil in Tolkien for hours. You can talk about the role of God in Tolkien for hours. Um, you can even talk about some of these things in the, as they appear in shorter works, like The NeverEnding Story or The Last Unicorn. Um, it's there. And here, in Bradbury's work, it's not necessarily there. We get glimpses. Um, and part of the problem here is that it is so difficult to parse. Again, like I said last time, um, so many of the details, so much of the action is obscured uh, by Bradbury's sort of pyrotechnic literary exploits, his, his excitability in writing about, you know, various characters doing things. You know, he's much more interested in the impressions than the actual mechanics. Um, as much as, you know, he apparently, in a conversation with Sam Peckinpah, who offered to, at one point, direct uh, the movie version of Something Wicked This Way Comes... Um, this is according to the afterword in, in my little 1997 uh, Avon edition. Um, but apparently, like, Bradbury reports that he asked, How will you do it, Sam? And Sam Peckinpah responded, Rip the pages out of your book and stuff them in the camera. Um, as, you know, kind of ridiculous as that response is, and sort of appropriately poetic for a conversation with Ray Bradbury, I want to stress... I can't imagine how you would film this book. Like, as much as Bradbury is a very evocative writer, he's not a very visual writer. Not here. So much of this book's ominousness, so much of the horror surrounding this book, has to do with purely a matter of the character's impressions or the tone of the thing. Um, descriptions that cannot possibly be rendered into actual visual cinema. You know, like I said last time, when visual horror uh, is, is conducting its business, it's always with the context of, the, of what's on the scene. Bradbury benefits here from not having to fill in all of those details, from being able to give us impressions and let our imaginations run away with us. That's what he always does in some sense, um, but here more than ever. Um, so again, the visuals of this kind of don't make sense. It's not evocative in that way. But in the same way that many of those great fantasy works that I mentioned, again, Tolkien and Herbert and so on and so forth, are more than visual, I think this book warrants an examination. Um, I think this book warrants looking at as though it is in fact, doing its own sort of take on philosophy, um, that it has its own metaphysics, it has its own internal logic, even if logic isn't quite the right word here, internal consistency, um, it has something to say. Um, and obviously, this book is very interested in good and evil. Many of the characters spend a lot of time talking about it. There are long expository passages where Charles will sit down with Will, or where Charles will sit down with both Will and Jim, or where Mr. Dark will, you know, get one of his villainous monologues, and they'll talk about good and about evil and about the relationship between the two and about what is sort of offered here. And as much as much of it is vague and much of it is in that very evocative language that isn't visual and isn't auditory, but is still very sensual. Um, Bradbury spends a lot of time talking about this stuff. Um, it's clearly a major interest of his. But it's a major interest of his as something that he's writing about, 
you know, so many of the works that we've talked about of Ray Bradbury's, it's very clear that they're very close to his heart, that he's got something that's bothering him, and he's telling us about it. You know, Fahrenheit 451 has so much to do with Bradbury's fears about the society that he lives in, his discomfort with a world that questions pedestrians but does not question sitting in a room with a television set for hours on end, a culture that questions great literature literature of the speculative, you know, as we saw with Usher 2, or as we saw with um, the Exiles in the Illustrated Man collection, and yet somehow does not question people, you know, getting excited about sports, or filling filling them with non-combustible information, as Professor Faber describes it. Um, Bradbury is scared of humans' reach in some places, you know, he's very concerned with human hubris here. Um, but a lot of the themes that we have been accustomed to finding in Bradbury, we don't find here as much. Or rather, Bradbury is talking about them rather than evoking them, the way that he usually does in, in his earlier work. Um, more so than any of the other stories that we've seen so far, and we've seen a fair number of them, I get the sense that this work is, for Bradbury, somewhat artificial. That he is just telling a story here. And while that story does sort of bleed over into his own interests, and we can see that where he's at his most earnest and most passionate, um, it is not as heartfelt as something like Fahrenheit 451 or even the Martian Chronicles to some degree. Bradbury's anger isn't as visible here as it often is in his works. He is writing with the benefit of distance, I suspect. Um, which is all the more appropriate because, again, this is at the end of the day a kid's story. Like, not necessarily a story for kids, the subject matter makes that very much in doubt, um, but a, a story about kids. And Bradbury, as much as he clearly loves the lives of children, he's drawing from his own experience here, there's a ton of connections to be drawn here between, you know, Will and Jim's relationship and Something Wicked This Way Comes and the Greentown setting that he uses in, in uh, Dandelion Wine. Um, at the same time, he seems to have located his sort of author insert character less in the children and more in Charles Halloway himself, as we'll talk about. Um, but we'll get to that in its own right. First and foremost, I want to talk about the carnival. Um, I want to talk about what evil looks like in this book. Um, because, again, it's really hard to pin down. Like, for the first hundred pages or so, we get all of this ominous discussion of, you know, the carnival setting up, and the, the posters being threatening, and, you know, the mysterious woman in the ice who is there, and then she isn't, and then, for some reason, never comes up again unless she's actually the Dust Witch, in which case we that's never explained. Like, it's very ambiguous what, what the actual threat is for, you know, the better part of a hundred pages. The first real indication that anything is actually wrong, that it's not just, you know, paranoia on the part of Jim and Will, is when first we find poor, you know, the poor school teacher who wanders into the, the mirror maze and then, like, comes out really upset and comes out really changed and then a little while later, like, they, they try and break into her house because apparently Cougar is dressed up as her nephew or something. Like, it's all weird. We don't quite get a sense of 
why it's bad, but we know that it is bad because we're being told that it's bad. Jim and Will, again, have really dark premonitions about all this. Um, but the first time that anyone is actually in any actual danger, besides, again, the rumors about the barber who just vanishes without any explanation, is when the Dust Witch shows up and marks Jim's house in her balloon, and then Will has to literally fight her off. Like, the first act of actual, non-theoretical, non-abstract violence that occurs is when the Dust Witch kind of reaches out to Will from the balloon, is dragging him into the balloon, and he ultimately pops the balloon with the arrow that he is carrying. Um, like, she even manages to break the bow somehow, which, again, is inexplicable. It just seems to happen. Bradbury doesn't show any active violence here. Just the bow breaks in his hand, and then he ends up having to throw the arrow, which apparently does the job. Um, and that's, again, the first real violence that we get. Like, halfway through the book, we, we barely hit that in our the first half of our reading. Um, but things escalate dramatically after that. Um, like, we do in fact have the, the boys hiding from, you know, the carnival freaks at first, which again might read as paranoia, seeing as so little has actually happened at this point. Um, but we also see that the poor uh, school teacher is, has been turned into a child. Um, that she took the same ride on the carousel that Mr. Cougar took, and as a consequence now she's upset and she's crying. Um, at this point, the boys go into hiding, and they are covered by Charles, happily. Um, they hide out for the entire day, at which point Charles invites them back to the library. They have another philosophical discussion, and then things really get da dangerous. Like, Mr. Dark shows up. He apparently injures Charles, although when exactly is unclear, as besides, like, threatening to give him a heart attack. Um, then he literally grabs the boys, drags them out, apparently gets the Dutch Dust Witch to enchant them in some way, um, as well as get the Dust Witch to apparently kill Charles Halloway, at which point, you know, we're really off and running and the third act is upon us. And on some level, again, I'm not sure how well this works. Like, I find this frustrating. Um, now... Big third act, you know, like changes and, and dramatic increases in stake and scopes. That's pretty normal for horror writing. Um, like I was reading recently reading Thomas Old Huvelt's Hex, um, and he does something fairly similar, where you know things are kind of ominous and threatening for a while, um, but finally, like right about the last third of the novel, all things go to hell, and like all of these major threats become a thing, and there there's actual violence and actual danger, and you know people are dying, and there's a great deal of suffering and violence, and you know all of the things that you've been expecting and waiting for finally come to a head. But the difference there is that we do get glimpses. Um, good horror writing usually threatens the violence and, and gives us tastes of that violence before the violence actually comes about. Usually the first act of violence is something that is shocking, something that, you know, horrifies us, something that comes out of nowhere or that we anticipate for a long time before it finally actually, like, comes to pass. But again, that's lacking in this novel for the most part. So much of this war is waged in the abstract. Um, but that said, let's talk about the actual threats that we are cataloging here. Um, first and foremost, the mirror maze. 
Like, this is the first real threat that we see in this book. Again, our poor school teacher walks into the mirror maze, wanders around for a little while, and then has to get basically physically bodily dragged out by Jim and Will because she's experienced something truly traumatizing. Now, this is not really effectively described to us. We don't know what has traumatized her, but we can extrapolate based on her reaction. The fact that her very next move is to go to the carousel um, and to become younger. Um, as well as, you know, in the back half of the novel, when Charles and Will wander into the mirror maze, when they go looking for Will, and we see how Charles reacts to the mirror mage, then it becomes very clear what is going on here. And, and Charles makes it clear in his, his descriptions earlier, um, even if, you know, again, it isn't something we witness, it's something we're told about. Um, in effect here, the mirror maze is a reminder of mortality. Like, this seems to be the real the real clarity here. Um, both the school teacher and Jim Nightshade, when they go into the mirror maze, immediately come out wanting something to change. They see themselves depicted, reflected in all of these mirrors, and the act of being surrounded by themselves is enough to send them into a need for change. Um, to desperately wish for something different. And that of course, brings us naturally to the carousel. Um, the carousel itself is is probably the best explained mechanics in the book, which is good because it's the one that like we rely on the most for a lot of our stakes here. Um, the carousel apparently is this somewhat magical, somewhat mechanical device that when it proceeds forward, it makes you older, and when it goes backward, it makes you younger. Um, something that is emphasized especially by the fact that, it, that it's playing the funeral march. So when the funeral march plays forward, you get closer to the grave, and when it plays backward, you get farther away from it. You know, another sort of typically Bradburyan detail. Um, again, we're introduced to this one pretty early, and we are shown the effects of this one more than told. Like, yes, poor Miss Tooley going into the mirror maze is traumatizing enough, but we get to literally see Mr. Cougar ride the carousel backwards, become younger, though the eyes never change, gifted as they are with the wisdom of apparently however many generations he's been doing this. Um, and then as a young man, he slips into Miss Cooley or Tooley's influences, you know, and she ultimately, like, is suckered into riding the carousel back backward as well. Um, but importantly, for both the mirror, the relationship of the, for the between the mirror maze and the carousel is kind of a key here. The mirror maze reveals to you your imperfections. It reveals to you how old you are, or how young you are, or how much you are not the person you want to be. And the carousel makes you that person. If the mirror maze reminds you of mortality, the carousel is your escape from mortality. Um, especially because for so many of the characters, for the, the carnival freaks especially, this is a guarantee that they never have to age. Because they own the carousel, because they can ride it whenever they want, they are practically immortal as a consequence. And Charles Halloway definitely suggests that both Cougar and Dark have been riding this carousel for ages at this point, and that the carnival has been going on since at least the 19th century or the 18th century. Who knows if it's been going on for thousands of years by all accounts. There's nothing to prevent it from having been the case. Um, so the carousel is, again, something tempting. 
And this we do see echoes of in other Bradbury stories. Like, Bradbury has often shown us the danger of getting what we want. Like, this is honestly one of the biggest themes throughout all his works, now reduced to its sort of broadest perspective here. You know, in Fahrenheit 451, the great danger that is presented to all the characters is happiness, in some sense. A sort of frictionless contentment. Um, just sit in front of the television screen, have, you know, the various family members scream at you all day long, let it drown out all of your worries, all of your fears, all of your concerns, and as a consequence, just live that life. You know, this is what the carnival here is promising as well. And it's the same act of ignorance and sort of, like, self-destruction in that sense, um, like, as much as Bradbury is, you know, not against happiness in some sense, he is against a superficial happiness. A happiness that comes at a cost. Um, or a happiness that, you know, just glosses over the realities of the world that you in fact live in. Like, you need darkness in your life, Bradbury is kind of suggesting here. Um, so, on some level, the carnival is promising the same sort of thing. A release from your cares. Um, an escape from your life. For Jim, that means getting older without actually having to go through the years of getting older. For Charles and for Miss Tooley, as well as for the carnival freaks, it means being able to become younger whenever you see fit and not having to grapple with one's own mortality. Um, and in some sense, that's exactly what's going on in Fahrenheit 451 as well. Like, all of these people just having fun, whiling the hours away, ignoring the fact fact that war is approaching, and that indeed they're all going to get nuked into oblivion soon enough. That lack of awareness, that fear of reality, is what Bradbury seems to have pretty squarely in his sights here. But again, where it is so real in Fahrenheit 451, where it is a constant and present danger to all the characters and is a reminder to us as well, this is what could happen if we allow this to be the case, that threat is more distant here and something wicked this way comes. We never worry about this getting under Will's skin. And since Will is kind of our primary perspective character, it's never offered to us as a real temptation. Will stands pretty much untouched by the allure of the carousel. On the one hand, Jim is definitely tempted to become older, and Will has to constantly fight Jim away from it, but Jim is constantly mysterious to us. He is always presented to us at a remove. There is always something dark about Jim, something that Charles acknowledges and that Will is sort of forced to reckon with now that he sees that his friend is you know, sneaking out of the house without him and, and going on this carousel without him and willfully separating the two of them. Uh, but honestly, the character who I suspect Bradbury identifies with, again, if only because he's the one who gets all the long speeches and he's the one who gets all the good lines and he's the one who gets to save the day, is Charles. Charles is old. Painfully old. We were introduced to him as painfully old. Like, he is sort of introduced to us talking to his wife, reckoning with the fact that he is so, so very old. Um... That, you know, he got married in his late 30s, and as a consequence, you know, he is a 50-year-old father of a 11-year-old boy, and that makes him so unable to connect with his son. That distance is something that he is very self-conscious about all the time. And for him, yeah, the allure is real. 
but we spend the most time with him when he is either unaware of the temptation of the of the carousel or alternatively when he is committed to fighting against it so again that temptation really doesn't exist for us it is always something that happens to other people in this novel not something that happens to our primary characters and the ones that we tend to identify with the most which again makes this a story it gives us that distance you know, like I said last time, this is kind of the quintessential Halloween novel just because it captures both the, the sort of, like, put-upon fictional scariness of Halloween from the sort of childlike, laughing, you know, not serious perspective. It's not a horror story. It's a story about a horror. It has more in common with folktales or with myth than it does with, you know, actual stories meant to scare you in some way or to prey upon your fears in some way. Um, so that distance is definitely there. And as much as the mirror maze and the carousel are like, you know, Bradbury's The City or like the things that I've been talking about before, as much as they stick in your mind as these sorts of symbolic reminders of, again, our mortality and our desire to escape it, the opportunity to escape it, um, they are, again, just symbols. They are sort of in this archetypal space. We know that it is a story that we're being told here in a way that we aren't so sure with Fahrenheit 451 or the Martian Chronicles, you know, where we are literally invited to compare that society with ours. Now, I should say, again, this is not the full extent of the carnival, but the rest of it is so kind of ill-defined here that it's hard to talk about the threat that it tends to present. Um, like, I'm kind of tempted to talk about the tent a little bit, just because we get that really strange passage uh, during the, the setup scene where it appears that, like, the tent poles and strings are, like, carving tent fabric out of the clouds and then you know again here at the end when mr dark and the carnival is sort of like disrupted um it just kind of vanishes uh it all sort of disappears inexplicably um like there's clearly some other stuff going on here there are other features there are other attractions um uh, but they have more to do with the individual characters than they do with the actual structure of the thing itself like, the two major threats that the carnival seems to propose, the ones that Bradbury harps on the most, are the mirror maze and the carousel. Those are the two sort of reciprocal temptations here. You go into the mirror maze, you are reminded of your mortality, you go to the carousel, you fix that in theory. Um, but importantly, as you know, Charles says, that's kind of a lie in its own right. Um, but we'll get to that. For now, I want to talk about the characters, the, the freaks themselves. And obviously the one that we really need to talk about the most is Mr. Dark. Um, he is the leader of this troupe, as far as we can tell. Like, it is Cougar and Dark's carnival, but Cougar is very much taken out of commission really early when the carnival go or the carousel goes awry, and he is, like, super-aged hundreds of years until he's nothing but, like, this dry, withered skeleton. Um, like, obviously Cougar does not present much of a threat at that point. Like, he is threatening when he's the kid living in Miss Tooley's house and trying to convince her to, you know, come and take a couple of years off her life on a, or add a couple of years to her life on the carousel. But because he is, you know, aged out of the picture so quickly, like, we don't have to worry about him so much. He becomes kind of an icon of fear, but not actually something to fear in its own right. Dark, however, 
is. And once again, Mr. Dark is our illustrated man. Not the tattooed man, but the illustrated man. This is literally the language Bradbury uses again, which makes me all the more aware of Bradbury's preoccupation with this particular image. Um, like we saw in the Illustrated Man collection in the framing device there, we are treated to descriptions of Mr. Dark as being covered in sort of like a horde in his own right. Um, and importantly, as we're shown, many of the things that are tattooed on, mis on Mr. Dark are, in fact, the carnival freaks. There seems to be a deep connection between the physical body of Mr. Dark and the various things that he's done to the various people in his orbit. Um, there is a connection between the Dust Witch and the picture of the Dust Witch on Mr. Dark's body. There is some connection between Will and the picture of Will on Mr. Dark's body, as well as Jim and the picture of, of Jim on Mr. Dark's body. When Charles confronts Mr. Dark as he's looking for the kids and as you know he's protecting them from his notice while they're hiding under the, the sewer grate, Mr. Dark like grabs, digs his fingers, fingernails into his own palms where the pictures of Jim and, and Will are on his body, and this apparently causes them physical pain. Like, Mr. Dark, by having them on his person, has power over them in some way. When they are walking back to the carnival after he's captured them, he can control and can steer them, can cause them to behave. Um, in some sense, it seems that they are an extension of his will, that Mr. Dark effectively controls them. And this isn't quite clear why. Like, obviously, you know, for many of the freaks, they've kind of submitted to his attentions. That He has control over them in some way because they have submitted themselves to his control. Um, like, we are told about the, the lightning rod salesman, who is now the dwarf in, in this freak show. Um, like, Will recognizes him, again, from the eyes, and says, hey, that's the lightning rod salesman, Mr. Fury. Um, and yet, like, it's not clear exactly why, or what happened, or how this transformation has occurred. Um, just that Mr. Dark now has control of this person, he is now working for Mr. Dark, and in the process seems to have lost a certain amount of his own free will. Um, like, our lightning rod salesman, the poor dwarf, actually sees the kids when they're hiding under the grates. But the way Bradbury describes it, he doesn't have the ability to act on this. Like, he is practically just an automaton at this point. Um, that he sort of takes a mental picture of it and then walks away because he can't develop the picture at this point. Like, he has to bring it back to Mr. Dark, at which point Mr. Dark will make use of it, apparently. Um... It's strange, the relationship between these various characters, Mr. Dark and his various freak show, both on his body and in their, you know, actual physical forms. Um, but it is clear that without Mr. Dark, they don't have any power at all. Like, when Mr. Dark is, in fact, killed, the... the illustrations on his body all sort of dissipate and, and disintegrate, and all of the freaks also dissipate and just leave. They are apparently freed from his control. 
But at the same time, we don't get the kind of fairy tale ending where, you know, the enchantment is broken and everybody returns to their original form. Like, there's no conversation with the lightning rod salesman afterward where he's like, that was a close one. Thanks for helping me out there. Nor do we see Miss Tooley, like, restored to her original form. No, none of that happens. Bradbury is clearly not interested in that. Um, and again, I'm kind of led to say it that way, that Bradbury isn't interested in these things. Um, because on the one hand, there's a part of me that's like, well, this is incomplete. I'm left with questions. I want to know more about this stuff. Um, and it's just not forthcoming. Um, and it's easy to use that as a criticism. You know, Bradbury is not doing the, the work that we provide or that we would ask of a storyteller because he is not answering all the questions we have. But again, I think that's intentional. Or at the very least, it's what Bradbury wants. It is not something he is interested in. Giving us gratification, tying up all the loose ends, giving us closure for the fates of these various bit part characters isn't something that Bradbury is interested in doing. Either because he has a de dedicated artistic goal outside of that, or in opposition to that, i.e., you know, he wants there to be mystery, he doesn't want to give us the satisfaction, he wants, you know, the horror to linger in the spaces that we don't understand and that we do not know. Um, or alternatively, because, again, he's so laser-focused on the relationship between Charles, Will, and Jim that everything else is kind of secondary and therefore disposable, even in the conclusion. Um, either way, that's what we're left with. So Mr. Dark clearly has some sort of inexplicable, undescribed control here over the various characters, and it doesn't necessarily require a buy-in. Like, Will does not do anything that puts him under Mr. Dark's power. He just is, because Mr. Dark has a picture of him on his hand. As much as, you know, we might expect from something like Tolkien, you know, that there is a buy-in, that, you know, by committing some evil, you submit yourself to the power of evil. You know, like I think of the Silmarillion and how, you know, when the various sons of Fanor try and wrestle with, with Morgoth and the story of Ben, Baron, and Luthien, you know, like, Sauron is more than able to overcome them because he draws their attention to the fact that they have failed, that they, you know, gave themselves up to these horrible crimes, that they, you know, killed their own kin, um, and therefore are in some way vulnerable. They are not the paragons that they hope to be. But Will never has that moment. There is no fall for Will. Will does not sell himself. Will does not feel the temptation to become older. Will does not want this the way that Jim does, the way that Charles does. He just is a kid. And at least part of what's communicated by this, because Bradbury makes this power over Will non-voluntary, -volunt seems to suggest that evil doesn't require that here. Like, as much as so much of this story is about the evil of wanting things that you can't have, of wanting to avoid your mortality, of wanting to sort of willfully remain ignorant of the, the powers in this world, Bradbury seems to suggest that evil is perfectly able to just exercise power over you without any help from you. Um, Mr. Dark is scary in his own right. His power over you comes inexplicably, comes at least partially from how much power you give to him, but he does not require that power either. He can force you to do the things that he wants you to do. 
And in some sense, you know, like, I want to dwell on that. Maybe not as much for Will, who seems like he should be spared Mr. Dark's influence, but in the person of Jim, especially. Because Jim is dark. Jim does have that dark side. Jim is tempted by this power. And we see why. Like, this is actually surprisingly well-developed here through this story. We see that Jim, A, has this dark side. Charles describes it to us from the moment they are in the library together and gives us that speech about how Jim always likes his dark, his black hat books. Um, that he will, you know, keep reading about dinosaurs now, but will one day graduate to Machiavelli and Dr. Faustus. Um, will does not have that. But we also see that Jim has, and along with this darkness, a desire. Because, again, they pass by the street where the theater exists, where Jim goes to, to peep in the windows and see people having sex. As much as, you know, this might be, like, another sort of indication of age and adolescence driving these two boys apart, how Jim's temperament stands in somewhat in opposition to Will's temperament, and how this is something that is you know, not reconcilable between the boys. They're growing apart, in effect, because of this temperament, because of their di differing desires. We are also shown that Jim has this desire, that Jim wants to be a man, that Jim is unsatisfied being a boy in the way that Will is satisfied being a boy, and that Charles wants to become a boy. We see that Jim hungers for more that he is connected to this dark world not just because of his temperament, but because he has an active desire that Mr. Dark can exploit. But importantly, as much as Mr. Dark can and does exploit Jim's desire, as much as Jim, of his own free will, gets up in the middle of the night to go on the carousel for Will to like tackle him and bring him down, note that Mr. Dark still does control him. That Mr. Dark does, in fact, get the dust witch to darning needle dragonfly Jim's mouth just as much as he does Will's. Mr. Dark, in effect, is more than happy to let Jim wander of his own free will and of his own desire onto the carousel, but once Jim and Will prove a threat, Mr. Dark is more than willing to make him do these things as well, to force that upon him. And in this sense, I actually think that this has way more to do with a pagan mindset, with the stuff that we talk about in the ancient Greeks, way more than it does with a Christian mindset like we would see in Tolkien. A Christian would argue that you need to buy into evil for evil to have a hold over you. This is what C.S. Lewis does in the Chronicles of Narnia with Edmund buying into, you know, the, the Turkish delight and the queen seducing him over to his side. This is what happens with all the characters in Lord of the Rings, as well as all of the, like, the species overall. You know, the elves, the humans, the dwarves, they all have this moment where they succumb to darkness and that brings more darkness into the world. Here, that's not the case. Here, we are seeing something more like the Greek worldview where passion can passion and the gods can overcome you at a moment's notice for no reason and where being evil or you know having these desires sort of invites the gods to come and mess with you as well mr dark is more powerful it seems when you buy into what he has to offer but he can still control you even if you don't and importantly mr dark doesn't seem to have too much of a distinction between the two 
You know, I think back to that passage in the Odyssey that I like to talk about in my lectures, where Odysseus is, you know, sort of like swept up onto the island of the of the cows, and he is tricked by the gods into falling asleep, so his crew will devour the cows, so Zeus can punish him later. And I'd emphasize, you know, it's not fair. Like, Odysseus never has a chance here. Every time that Odysseus would try and overcome the, the obstacles, the gods get in his way, and then the gods punish him for not being over, able to overcome these obstacles. The gods tempt him, he overcomes the temptation, the gods subdue him, and then punish him for his subduing. That's exactly what's happening with, with Mr. Dark as well. Like, on the one hand, Mr. Dark is goading Jim into riding the carousel and sort of willfully submitting himself to the power that Mr. Dark offers. The relationship that Charles describes in the library, where, you know, you ride the carousel thinking that it will make you happy because it's going to fix the problems you identify in the mirror maze, but then you realize you can't be happy outside of your normal state. None of your friends will accept you. You are isolated and alone. You are an old person in a young person's body and therefore a freak, which Mr. Dark will then exploit and turn you into one of his carnival troupe. This is the relationship that we anticipate. But Mr. Dark is more than willing to get you to ride the carousel by any means necessary, including controlling you to do it. So essentially, he is punishing you for being in his power while you are already in his power. Again, just like Odysseus. So, on some level, I'm not sure there is a consistent metaphysics here underlying what Mr. Dark's power actually is. But I think that inconsistency is itself consistent. That that is, again a human vision of evil, a non-Christian vision of evil, a very much pagan view of evil, but a view of evil nonetheless. You know, Charles Halloway acknowledges Mr. Dark is a demon, as we might call him, but he has less in common with Christian demons than he does with pagan gods. He is powerful in his own right, although he does ex or accept submission to that power, he is tempting in the Christian sense, but he does not rely on temptation alone for the strength of his will. Now, Cougar, again, is kind of a non-entity here, but I do want to sort of draw on what happens to him, because as a freak, as, you know, like, going from being one of the major leaders of the carnival and theoretically being on par with Mr. Dark to being the desiccated like, practically a corpse from, you know, riding the carousel for too long, as much as that does seem to incapacitate him, it does sort of bring about a new horror that the kids sort of have to acknowledge and contend with. Namely, as much as Mr. Cougar is sort of, like, artificially aged, the suspicion here is that the form that he is now in is almost more appropriate to him. Like, his graduation from like, being a leader of the carnival who is perpetually young due to the power that he is executing, to a freak in the carnival who is just freakishly old and can only, like, perform even rudimentary activity with the help of the electric chair. Like, this is a source of horror for Bradbury. He plays on that. Like, the moment when all of the kids bring the cops into the, the place where the freaks are hanging out, and the cops are starting to ask questions, you know, is that guy actually dead? And Mr. Dark powers up the contraption in order to, you know, show the, the cops what, like, what, what his power is, why the kids were so confused. Um, 
In so doing, Bradbury describes this as being in itself horrifying to both Will and to Jim. That this is not just horrifying because it puts them in a very awkward position. Now nobody is going to trust them. Now it's clear that you know their efforts to to like defeat Cougar have been thwarted and that they could theoretically bring Cougar back to his original upstanding age. On the other hand, him being a mummy is frightening. And I want to stress this because, again, this sort of goes back to what Bradbury is doing here. Like, again, this is a story. We are not presented with this as, you know, we are presented with Fahrenheit 451, where it's like, this could happen to you. No, it's scary for its own sake, in its own sake. And I think, again, that kind of emphasizes the sort of horror that Bradbury is trafficking in here. The book itself is a carnival sideshow. It is not something that is meant to frighten us in the sense of, you know, urge us into thinking that, like, we are not safe in our own homes, or the place that we, the places that we tend to be most comfortable are themselves scary and destructive. Like, Bradbury is describing evil as a thing in the world. Not evil as it exists in us, or evil as it might overtake us, but literally just a frightening thing. Something that is, in itself, scary. Yes, it's mixed in and among all of these temptations, all of these things that Bradbury usually harps on, the things that we can do to destroy ourselves. You know, here is Cougar and Dark coexisting with the carousel, with the, the actual mirror maze, with all of these reminders of our mortality and these deeper thematic resonances. But no, Cougar is just scary because he's scary, because he's this really old dude who can only live with the help of electricity, who is being artificially kept alive by this troop of carnival freaks, despite the fact that he probably is as old as his age would seem here. Like, all of this is meant to be frightening. And I imagine that put on a screen, it would be. Here in the book, though, I'm not sure if it's as effective. Again, it scares Will, it scares Jim. We're encouraged to identify with that to some degree, but we're more meant to see it as scaring them than it is to scare us, I think. But the other kind of issue here is we do, as much as like Cougar is not a threat for the rest of the book and is sort of just, you know, trying, an invalid trying to be restored to his original form by Dark and Company, um, sort of like accidentally incapacitated by the kids, um, I should stress that we do get to see his death scene, sort of. Like, they're apparently trying to bring Cougar back to the carnival after everything is shut down, like, during the big action scene where, you know, like, Will and, and Charles are wandering through the mirror maze, and they finally get out, and then they turn a corner, and they breathe him in. Like, he's disintegrated. He, they, they like, taste grave dust, effectively. The marrow of his bones, now that he's literally died and just disappeared in the wind. Um, this is apparently the end to which he's been submitted. And they don't, like, immediately run into the others as well. He's apparently been abandoned. He's just a liability at this point. So Cougar's death is ignominious. And while it is, again, scary as that thing that is happening out there, you know, as the carnival sideshow, as something scary in and of itself, but that we are safe and home in our beds from, like, that's the sort of thing that we're reckoning with here. That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with. Um, likewise, we've got the Dust Witch. And the Dust Witch, again, her powers are pretty unexplained here. On the one hand, she's frequently described and contrasted with, like, the fortune teller inside of a, like, 
you know, pay a quarter, get a ticket kind of machine from Bradbury's own day. Um, she does seem to be very old in her own right, which suggests she too was probably a human at one point and transformed by the carousel. Um, but her powers are also pretty inexplicable. Like, we get that darning needle dragonfly thing, which is fairly haunting, but also, you know, again, carnival sideshow, something separate from us while we read safe in our beds. Um, but at the same time, like, she seems to have some very sort of poorly defined powers as well. She seems to be able to see the future, or at least see something that doesn't have anything to do with her eyes, because they are apparently like blind she they're either stitched shut or just incapable of sight um we also see how she has power over will and jim when like dark commands her to sort of stitch their their eyes and their ears and their mouths shut so they will behave um and the darning needle dragonfly apparently like controls them in some way like causes them to be unable to do things that they would normally be able to do either from their own volition or because of reasons we can't explain, whatever. Um, but we also see that she can kill people. Like, Dark instructs her and, and tells, you know, Charles that she can cause you to have a heart attack that will look perfectly like natural causes. Um, and we see her getting ready to do this to Charles. Like, Charles is suddenly very aware, very conscious of his own heart, of his own mortality. He is suddenly aware of how very old he is. Um, and that seems to be the power that she wields. Which brings us to Charles and how you fight these evils. Because if the Dust Witch is kind of the most powerful, like, or at least the initially most powerful, she seems to have some kind of magic powers, maybe granted by Dark, maybe not, because he doesn't seem to have those powers himself. Um, but again, does he control her? How does he control her? All of this is very much left up in the air. The one thing that does seem very clear is that as much as the Dust Witch has this power, has this power to sort of control and, and command, has this power to sort of like restrict and, and condemn even, as much as she is right there convincing Charles Halloway's heart to fail him, Charles can fight back. And importantly, the way he does fight back isn't through, like, ignorance or through ignoring her power or convincing his mind otherwise. He fights back by laughing at her. Like, here she is, she's casting her spell, and apparently, according to Bradbury, this involves this intricate finger maneuver of her, like, weaving something out of the wind or the dust in the air. Again, sort of suggested by that Dutch or Dust Witch uh, moniker that she's carrying. But Charles, when he sees her weaving this out of the air, it makes it seem like she's tickling the air. And he laughs at her, and this causes her to weaken. Um, the greater he laughs, the greater he smiles, the greater he considers this ridiculous, the more this stops her power, and for that matter, drives her back, wounds her in some sense. When he manages to, like, belt out a full belly laugh at how ridiculous she's being, the Dust Witch is so wounded that she has to leave, giving Charles the opportunity to recover. And this is something consistent. We're going to see this often in the back half of the novel, as Charles becomes more confident and more able to wield this power. This is how Charles beats them. 
Like, as much as, you know, Charles and Mr. Dark's confrontation in broad daylight seems to use the fact that they are in a crowd as part of the defense. Like, there's Charles smoking a cigar, lightly, like, reposting all of Dark's comments. Now we're suddenly forced to look at that scene in a new light. Mr. Dark does seem to have power over people, even in broad daylight, and he does seem to be able to use any number of weapons at his disposal that aren't visible to crowds. You know, it doesn't seem to be entirely a matter of the crowd that is, that is you know, causing him this weakness. Again, like, when he's leading Will and Jim along, numerous denizens of the town interrupt, and they're asking about them, and Mr. Dark is fully able to get Will and Jim to behave as though everything is perfectly normal. But on some sense, that scene is even more potent because Charles is effectively laughing at him. He is unfazed by the power that Dark wields, by the threat that Dark presents. And smiling becomes Charles's primary weapon. So he goes over to the carnival and he volunteers himself for the bullet trick out of the crowd, and then he carves a smile onto the wax bullet that's going to disintegrate when it leaves the gun, something that isn't going to do any physical damage to the dust witch at all, but because he carves his smile in it, because he tells the witch that it is his smile coming at her, because he says that it is his laughter, his grin, that he is shooting at her, that kills her when the bullet is fired. And again, this is not well explained. Like, Bradbury is not interested in showing us the deep metaphysics here. But the basic principle that Charles kills the Dust Witch with a laugh, that's crystal clear. That's what Bradbury is keen to tell us. That's what is most important in Bradbury's lights. Like, all of the mechanics of this are totally unexplained. Even to the fact that Dark doesn't recognize it. He thinks that it's just a crescent moon, which we might suggest, or might suggest to us that Dark himself isn't able to read a smile. Like, he isn't able to see what this might actually represent. He doesn't anticipate that Charles is going to fight back with laughter. But as Charles tells us in the library, as he's sort of lecturing Will and Jim, this is the difference between the summer people and the autumn people. The summer people are full of life. They are living sort of recklessly, while the autumn people are obsessed with mortality and are using that as a weapon against others. And on some level, Bradbury is drawing an interesting distinction here. We're, we're seeing a sort of illumination of the same themes that we've seen in Fahrenheit 451 and elsewhere. Again, the kind of sticking point that I keep bumping up to when I'm talking about these themes and how Bradbury does seem to sort of like reject our inclination towards a sort of no-frills, no-strings-attached happiness, uh, while also supporting, um, especially as we see here, grinning and laughing and happiness in, in some other sense. Like, I think we're actually being shown the difference between these two things. What Bradbury is saying here is that life lived in the summer is life lived to the full. It is doing the things that we want to do. It is, you know, enjoying life, going for a run for no reason, laughing, dancing, whatever, frivolous as it may be, but done deliberately with an effort to just express that joy itself versus the happiness that we seek and cannot have because it is a transgression of our, of our mortality. Happiness as an escape here. 
I think that's what Bradbury is trying to tell us. There are two happinesses, in effect. There is a happiness from fear, a happiness that causes us to, you know, cloister ourselves in our parlors, watch television 24-7, and avoid thinking about the dark things in the world, which then have all the more power over us because we are ignoring them. But also, a happiness that is born from just being happy, from doing the things that make life worth doing. Like, as much as Charles, throughout this entire book, is very self-aware and very conscious of his own mortality and very grim as a consequence, Charles, too, confronts that. Charles can see what Dark is threatening him with. Charles is, to some degree, defended against the allure of the carousel and the threat of the mirror maze because he already knows this about himself. He knows he's old. He knows he's too far gone. He knows that he's disconnected from the boys despite desperately wanting to be on a level with them. He knows these things. And as a result, when Dark tempts him, he knows what that temptation offers. The greatest danger for Charles is when the Dust Witch is threatening him with his heart attack. When he thinks about, yes, I am that close to it. I am convinced that this power is is not even that great, that a heart attack could come in him at any moment. Because he already knows that he's old, because he already believes that he's old. But on the same level, that reality is itself a defense against the illusions that sort of play up that reality. Since Charles knows he could have a heart attack at any time, the real danger presented to him is letting himself be convinced by the witch. But the fact of the matter is, the witch isn't convincing. He sees through the illusion. Yes, he could have a heart attack at any moment. He knows that he could have a heart attack at any moment. But does she really have to do all the stuff with the fingers? Like, does she really have to weave this out of the air? Does she really have to make this ridiculous gesture? What is threatening to us becomes humorous to Charles. And Bradbury seems to be stressing that the things that we are the most frightened of are in themselves kind of ridiculous, kind of silly. And on some level, he's cheating. Because again, it's all at arm's length here. It is all just carnival sideshow while we sit safe in our beds. Bradbury hasn't shown us a real threat. And as a consequence, he can stress here that it isn't actually all that threatening, that it is, in effect, all in our heads. And it is only by allowing ourselves to believe in these fears and allowing our, us to believe in these horrors that Brad, that Charles can overcome them. Um, or rather, that Char Charles could succumb to them. Um, since it is just a matter of believing in this threat that gives them power, it is also just a matter of not believing in it that allows us to overcome it. Now, it's not that simple. Again, Mr. Dark can control Will without any, you know, sort of access on his part. But we could also make the argument that Will allows Mr. Dark to control him by being afraid of him. Um, Mr. Dark, by being scary, and Will, importantly, has been afraid, has had these ominous premonitions throughout the entire book. Like, Will spends most of the book being frightened being scared, not anticipating the possibility that they could actually not be a big deal. But we do see that, and Charles begins to see that, and Charles turns that around. If Charles can be destroyed by his own beliefs, then he can destroy others with them as well. 
So by laughing at the Dust Witch, he kills her. By laughing in the mirror maze, he shatters all the mirrors and renders them useless. And by laughing at Mr. Dark, he kills him as well. The entire carnival is destroyed, effectively, by Charles reckoning with his mortality, accepting it, and laughing at it. Seeing how ridiculous he actually is. That's the joy that Bradbury is talking about here. That's the sort of moral, the central metaphysical conceit here. On some level, all of the characters who are in fact victimized by the carnival, all of the characters who are hurt by the carnival, all of them take it too seriously. When Charles learns not to, and teaches Will to do the same, that's when they take the power back. When they overcome this by laughing at it, then it stops being threatening and instead becomes ridiculous and ultimately is destroyed. And as much as that seems like the thesis, I don't think it's quite that clear. Like, again, there are indications elsewhere that there are, in fact, real and present dangers here. But notice that as Charles sort of con or commits this idea to Will, both of them are protected, and it's Jim who is then the real threat here. Like, Jim is the one in actual danger, and because Jim is in danger, that presents a danger to others as well. Like, Will can't just blow all of this off because there is a real threat presented here. Even if you personally believe that all of this danger, all of this threat is, is ridiculous, that doesn't change the fact that other people around you, who you do in fact care about and who you, know, you do have an investment in, may take it seriously, may succumb to that, and may actually harm themselves. You know, Jim does ride the carousel, he gets a year older, and apparently Will's hand does as well, in a particularly Bradburyan little detail. Um, but at the same time, like, that Will has to overcome it by laughing at it. Will has to ignore that danger in order to overcome that danger, which, again, it's kind of complicated here. Um... Bradbury seems to be stressing that we do need to keep a positive outlook. We do need to fight evil with laughter, with frivolity, with recognizing our own absurdity in the face of all of this darkness. But at the same time, we can't let our acknowledgement that it is absurd get in the way of the fact that we do need to actually stop this, that we do need to fight this, that there are actual victims of this danger, and that it is not pure illusion. Evil is not so illusory as to be just ignored and then immediately undone, nor is it so, you know, like, tempting as to have, have power only when we succumb to it. Um, it does have some real power. It does offer a real threat, if only to the people who are not protected against it. And this, too, we should sort of point out, like... As much as I've been stressing, you know, the, the, the fates and the plots surrounding these major characters, because that's clearly what Bradbury has most in mind, it's worth noting that a whole bunch of people come to this carnival and apparently don't get turned into freaks. Like, frequently the carnival is crowded. It, it's like every time the boys are there, there are people going up and down the midway, there are people apparently going into the mirror maze, like... People are taking advantage of all of the, the, you know, offers that Mr. Dark has and seem to be largely unfazed, either because they're oblivious or because they're too well defended or because it just doesn't affect them the way that it does. 
uh, Charles or Miss Julie or, you know, any of the other characters who do seem especially tempted by it. Maybe they don't have the dark streak that Charles and Jim Nightshade share. Maybe they don't have the sort of self-awareness that uh, the, the carnival can prey upon. It's not clear. None of it is clear. Uh, but importantly, in its lack of clarity, it remains fearful until we laugh at it, until we do away with it. So, what do we do with this? Uh, again, on the one hand, I'm not entirely sure Bradbury has a consistent sort of metaphysics in mind here. Like, if you tried to write a sequel to Something Wicked This Way Comes, you would probably have to do a lot of foundation laying in order to make that happen. Bradbury is doing more poetry than prose here. He is more interested in following the language and seeing where it leads him than he is in creating a believable world with believable characters and a plot that actually makes sense and builds tension in certain ways. Like, he's much more interested in the ground-level sentence-by-sentence language and the description than he is in the overall plotting, I suspect. Like, I can't really describe it any other way. I can't explain it any other way. That's just what Bradbury does. Um, but I also think that this book, because it is so sort of distilled, because it is very much like Bradbury writing without planning, Bradbury writing just from his own sort of experience and his own sort of preoccupations, I think we do get a pretty clear image of both where Bradbury is in his life, as well as what Bradbury is doing in his other work. Like, this can be used as the Rosetta Stone to, you know, interpret what has gone before, if we needed such a thing. Um, and obviously, Bradbury, again, because Charles is the character who does all of the heavy lifting and does all of the heavy thinking here, it's kind of not hard to imagine that this is Bradbury reckoning with his own mortality as well. That Bradbury here feels old. Uh, maybe not 50 years old. I'm pretty sure he's still in his 30s or 40s at the time that he's writing this, although by the afterward, he's going to be well into his 60s, I would think. Um, at any rate, you know, I think he is reckoning with the fact that he is getting older. He doesn't identify as easily with, you know, the heroic young men's first setting foot on Mars the way that he did in the Martian Chronicles, or poor Montag in his mid to late 20s being suckered in by, by a nation that has given up on, on thinking. You know, I don't think that that presents a danger to Bradbury either. I think the 50s were Bradbury writing young man stories as a young man, writing stories for young men, um, tapping into his own youth and his own anger at being young and being frustrated with the world that he finds himself stuck in. But here I see Bradbury writing as an old man. Like, only ten years has gone by. Bradbury certainly isn't as old as, as Charles Halloway and certainly is in no position to complain as much as Charles does. But the point of view is clearly changed here. Bradbury is an old man that thinks like a young man, like Charles does. Bradbury is an old man who wants to be young again, like Charles does. And Bradbury is an old man who realizes that being young isn't going to solve the problem. That that temptation is a feint. It won't fix things. That ultimately you've got to be an old man and enjoy being an old man in order to be an old man. You can't very well go back on it. You can't change it back around. And any change that could be offered is itself a lie, darkness, evil, illusion, and inevitably self-destruction as well. So Charles, I suspect, is Bradbury's author insert here. 
Like, it's kind of hard for me to read it any other way. Like, Charles just has an outsized influence on this story, and an outsized importance as well. Um, but as far as what is Bradbury doing here, I don't know. Like, I think he's just here to write a story, and I think he's here to write just an enjoyable story. I think he's basically here to tell us a ghost story. Something that, you know, spooks us around the fire, but doesn't necessarily connect to our lived experience in any way. Which, you know, that's kind of one of the things that ghost stories are usually meant to do, capitalize on. Like, we're alone in the woods in the dark, and I'm telling a story about people who are alone in the woods in the dark. Therefore, you can, you know, lie awake at night because you're worried that the thing that happened to them will also happen to us. Bradbury is not doing that. Bradbury is specifically drawing on experiences that we don't have, talking about this as a sideshow talking about freaks instead of showing us the freakiness within or something like that. Bradbury doesn't mean to scare us, but Bradbury is telling a story about people who are scared. That's why it's a Halloween story, I think. That's why I like it the way that I do. Not as, you know, something that scares me on a deep level. This isn't, you know, you know, like questioning the, the horrors in my own mind, like something like Lobotomy Corporation or Library of Ruin it does. It's not grappling with the social injustices the way that Jordan Peele's horror does, nor is it a keep-looking-over-your-shoulder-because-maybe-things-aren't-the-way-they're-supposed-to-be sort of horror the way that John Carpenter does. Like, there are many ways to do horror, and Bradbury isn't doing any of them. He's telling a story about these things, not of these things. And while I don't think it would be very hard to sort of convert some of these into the sort of deep monsters that betray our innermost fears and concerns, you know, the same way that, like, vampires are about, you know, the ruling class or zombies about alienation, you know, Bradbury is showing us monsters and devices to sort of exploit our own fear of mortality and to wrestle and wrangle with our mortality. As much as all that is true... Bradbury is encouraging us, inviting us thematically to view it from a distance, to see our own lives with objectivity, to not indulge in our fear. This is a story not about horror, but how horror should and can be kept at a distance and then laughed at. And if there is any real spiritual successor to this particular theming, the one that really springs to mind is Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf, which is a story that like, I did not understand when I was a kid. Like, when I was a teenager growing up, I definitely thought he was supposed to be earnest and definitely thought the, the ending was just baffling to me. But as I get older, I see what Herman Hess was doing there. I see the value in not taking oneself too seriously. And the fact that you can't take oneself too seriously. That as much as there is a sort of desperation in a lot of what we have to do just to get through the day, you know, we have to be desperate about our work lest we get fired. We have to be desperate about our family lest it break up. We have to be desperate about our health lest it fail us. Like, as much as we do have all of these things that can stress us out on a day-to-day -day basis and that do require us to be stressed in order to get done, Bradbury is emphasizing that these things are to some degree illusory, even though they are real. We just play them up too much in our minds, but also that the only way that we can effectively fight back against them is to treat them as they are totally illusory. Mr. Dark's power over us does not end when we refuse to acknowledge it, but it does end when we refuse to take it seriously.
Mr. Dark can control Will, despite the fact that Will has given him nothing to control. There is pain for Will in the world that Mr. Dark creates, in the dangers that Mr. Dark presents, and importantly, in the harm that Mr. Dark can do to the people around him. That's real. That's true danger. And Will has a lot of trouble in the scene where Charles tells him, you've got to laugh at it, you've got to reject it. Like, Will can't do that initially because Will is presented with a real threat. Jim could really be hurt here. But before Will can save Jim, Will has to give up and laugh about this. He has to recognize the absurdity of it. He has to not take it so seriously. And I'm honestly not sure where I come down on this. Like, this is a very difficult needle to thread. I think there's some truth to this. I think that horror and darkness will always have incredible power over us as long as we submit to it and succumb to it, and that the only proper way to respond to it is to stop allowing it to have that power over us. But going so far as to laugh at it is another thing, I think. Something that is way more difficult and maybe not even the effective solution in some cases. Like, here in 2022, the dangers of the world are, in fact, as real as Mr. Dark's control over Will. We have major social injustices. We have major threats. We have people who have succumbed to an illusion so deeply that, you know, that illusion has become reality, has presented political and authoritarian power. There are nations that are, in fact, geared to go to war with each other and are capable of doing great destruction in their wake. That's all part of our reality. And I'm not sure how much laughing at it really is the solution here. Like, we saw what happens when you laugh at these problems and turn it into something frivolous or something not taken seriously. And in most cases, those problems get worse. The folks on the internet who laughed at Donald Trump and voted for him ironically still managed to make him powerful, still brought a real threat to the world. That's not something that you can just laugh off. It's not quite that simple, and it's certainly not as simple as Bradbury seems to be making it here, if only because Bradbury's own text kind of betrays him. Again, Jim is in real danger. So I'm not sure exactly how to take this. I'm not sure how much wisdom we are being offered here. I'm not sure how deep the philosophy actually goes, or how much I'm willing to condone or, you know, prescribe it. What I love about this book is, again, the language, the poetry. It's what Bradbury loves about this book. It's what he's most interested in. But writing a book that's just language, that is just literary pyrotechnics, that is just having fun, ignoring the deeper implications of what you're saying and doing, the potential metaphysics underlying your claims here, that's dangerous. And while laughing at that danger is clearly Bradbury's solution here, I'm just going to write my book and you're going to deal with it, I'm not sure if that sort of callousness is something that I can necessarily recommend. Bradbury has several times disappointed us by not taking things seriously enough. You know, his writings about black people have been a little tone deaf because, you know, his response to, but maybe you shouldn't do that, is let them write their own books which doesn't get at the whole picture. It doesn't appreciate all of the nuances involved. On the one hand, Bradbury might accuse us of taking all of this too seriously, 
But on the other hand, if we don't take it seriously, how much of it is actually going to get fixed? We aren't going to get anywhere by dwelling on it. We aren't going to get anywhere by fretting on it. We aren't going to get anywhere by letting others, con others convince us about its impossibility or its difficulty. That I will absolutely agree with Bradbury on. But I'm not sure if the needle that Bradbury is threading is one that can be threaded or one that should be threaded. I think that there's probably some other solution in mind here. And while I do see a great deal of insight here, like I think that Bradbury is, whether intentionally or unintentionally, tapping into some richness in his theming and in his metaphysics, I'm not sure it's as rich as we saw in the Martian Chronicles, or in Fahrenheit 451, or for that matter in some of the stories of the Illustrated Man. I think Bradbury has gotten a little oversimplistic here in the 60s and beyond. I think that in not taking his writing as seriously as he did once upon a time, he may actually be doing everyone a bit of a disservice. I think turning it into just popcorn might not be the healthiest thing for everyone around us. And he might even be falling into some of the danger that he himself has been trying to warn us from. Isn't this an example of the kind of escapist literature that was so dangerous in Fahrenheit 451? Can he really thread that needle between being happy on some deep gut instinctual level and the happiness that people use to avoid the dark realities of the world? Can we accuse Charles of escapism as well? Is that fair? Like, has Bradbury become the thing that Bradbury most wanted to avoid once upon a time, here in the 60s with all of his success and all of his stories and his writing just for the sake of the joy of writing? How much of that is still the sort of thing that Faber described as touching life often? Are we here, in fact, just running a quick hand over her, ignoring the realities underlying this world, ignoring all of the storytelling conventions that are, in fact, there for a reason, because we feel compassion for characters that Bradbury doesn't seem to care about? We want to know what happened to Miss Tooley. We want to know what happens to the lightning rod salesman. We want there to be closure here. And if there isn't going to be, then we want at least Bradbury to recognize how awful it is that these things are permanent. That there is, in fact, lasting damage as a consequence to Mr. Dark's carnival, and it doesn't just blow away with the wind. As much as the end with, you know... Jim and Will and Charles all running a race together like children and slapping the flagpole at the same time to indicate that, you know, they are in fact equals, they can in fact for at least this moment of time all be on the same page together. As satisfying as that is for those three characters, the world, the world hasn't been fixed. And Bradbury doesn't dwell on that, and nor does he seem to invite us to dwell on it. Because again, we've been told dwelling on it isn't going to help. We need to laugh at it. That's how to make it go away. But does it? Does the world of something wicked this way comes just immediately go back to being the way that it was? Hasn't actual damage been done? And is it bad to acknowledge that? To recognize that? Or is that 
lack of recognition, lack of acknowledgement, itself a kind of escape. Has Bradbury failed us in some sense? And again, it doesn't change the fact that I enjoyed the book. Like, it was fun to read. It's just interesting to think about in the greater context of Bradbury's work. What changed? Why is he the way that he is now? What about the world is so comforting to Bradbury here in the 60s that his original paranoia, his original concerns have kind of gone away? You know, as much as, like, I was talking to Wes on, online some weeks ago about Fahrenheit 451 and the Martian Chronicles, and he emphasized how downbeat these stories were. You know, here we have Bradbury doing a very upbeat story, as much as it is a story of horror and darkness and evil, like, carnival barkers and stuff, as much as it is filled with freaks and monsters and, and like, life-or-death, good-versus-evil situations, this does end happily. Something that the Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451 can't say, and just about all of the stories in the in the Invisible or the Illustrated Man collection can't say, with the exception of, you know, the rocket and uh, what's-his-face treating his children to the illusory trip through the stars. Like, what does that leave us with, then? What is the value of illusion? What is the value of art in this case? Is Bradbury being the appropriate ambassador to the theme that he very much held dear to him. What is the business of treating life if this is what it looks like ten years down the line? And I'm not saying that it's not that. I'm just saying, what is it then? What has Bradbury touched? Why is he prioritizing these things over others? Because as much as, you know, all of his early works are very much grounded in his perspective, his fears, his deep concerns about the time, this one isn't. It seems more commercial, consumable. It seems distant. And I wonder if that means that it is separated from the life that Bradbury used to value so much once upon a time. In the afterword, Bradbury emphasizes that, you know, the, the story of this book coming about has an equally tortured relationship. That apparently sometimes after sometime after he published The Martian Chronicles, he met Gene Kelly, you know, singing in the rain, Gene Kelly. And he had a conversation with him, and Gene Kelly said, you know, I want to make a movie of one of your things. And, you know, finally, like, uh, he comes up with this this story that he wrote ages ago, The Black Ferris, you know, ten pages alone, and then he, like, brought it out into a screenplay, and then Gene Kelly got the screen, screenplay and he was trying to, like, peddle it overseas or something, and then finally, once the screenplay, once the screenplay, like, fell short and Gene Kelly comes back with nothing but bad news, then Bradbury, like, typed it up into, you know, Something Wicked This Way Comes as an actual novel, and then now the novel's being adapted into a movie, and, you know, everything old is new again, the cycle returns full swing. But somewhere... Somewhere in that story, I kind of feel like something went wrong. That Bradbury kind of sold out. Like, not sold out the way that any band sold out to big covers and then, like, totally violate their own logic or their own philosophy or something. But Bradbury accepted the commerciality of his work. Recognized that he could make money doing this and was happy making money doing this, and that was fine. And that stands kind of at odds with the worries that he had when he was a younger man. 
that now it's okay to just tell a story to be a story. Now, touching life maybe isn't as huge a priority as it used to be. Maybe Bradbury's okay sacrificing the truth if he's going to get something beautiful or something interesting or something exciting or something entertaining out of it. And I think this novel reflects that and that transition in Bradbury's mind, that this is a work that somehow managed to survive many changes and revisions from 1955 to 1961 to reach its, the form that we have it now, but also to sort of take on new life again when it's adapted further down the line. This is a book that Bradbury wrote to make money, to entertain, to make people happy, to be filmed, to solidify his reach as an author. And I wonder how much he had to sacrifice in order to make that the case. I wonder how much he gave up. And I wonder, too, if his whole philosophy at this point, you know, Charles Halloway saying, you've made a lot of mistakes to get to this age, and at the end of the day, you have to laugh at them, might be a little superficial. He might not necessarily be wrong, and there might be wisdom to what he says, but it remains a change. I'm not sure I like this Bradbury as much as I like the one from before. So next time, let's follow that. Let's see where he lands. Uh, we're going to start in on his 2002, 2003, I forget the exact date, book, uh, Let's All Kill Constance, where he's going to talk about Hollywood, and he's going to talk about mortality some more, and he's going to talk about aging actresses and just do a grand, rollicking, neo-noir-ish detective story with lots of antics and comedy and craziness and just all the things that we love about Bradbury. Um, we'll be reading the first 27 chapters, ending with a phone call, and that'll be the first half of our reading for next time. And I want to definitely look at what the transition that we start seeing here ultimately develops into. Because Let's All Kill Constance is even more of the same in that sense. Even more crackerjack writing, even more, you know, entertaining metaphors and language, even more, you know, rollicking, like, action without necessarily carefully describing or thinking about the logistics and, and the, the logic of the situation. Let's look at the writer that Bradbury has become and can revisit these questions once we see sort of his full development. Um, Bradbury at either the height of his powers or the greatest of his sacrifices. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. 
And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.